0: and welcome back to this is our design sound on sites hannibal podcast dedicated to brian fuller's series based on the characters created by thomas harris i am sean colletti contributing writer to sound on site and i am joined as ever by my co-host kate kolzek tv editor at sound on site kate do you take your coffee with sugar milk and blood
1: uh two of those and i'll let listeners guess which two
0: Okay, I have my theories, but uh, I won't let them know yet. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 6, Futamono, written by Andy Black, Brian Fuller, Scott Nimnerfro, Steve Lightfoot, and directed by Tim Hunter. And if those aren't enough names for you, we'd also like to welcome our special guest this week, Dennis Perkins from the AV Club. Hi, Dennis. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us.
2: Hi, Sean and Kate. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, as always, I want to start with our guest. And Dennis, I wanted to ask you a question regarding Miriam Lass. Uh, we get the reveal that she's still yep. alive at the end of the episode. In this episode, Hannibal says a true composer thinks about his unfinished work the whole time. And just based on how that concluding scene is directed, it's suggested that Jack finding Miriam alive is all part of Hannibal's composition. What do you expect Miriam's story about what has happened to her? to be and how does this piece function <laughs> on Hannibal's chessboard
2: yeah holy cow first of all I mean uh who saw that coming it was certainly wasn't me so uh you know I'm no better at guessing what Hannibal's game is than than Jack or anyone else except Will um I mean it's it's obvious to me that Hannibal meant Jack to find Miriam after all this time I mean uh he's Hannibal's not you know he doesn't make mistakes so the the bark in the in the lure and the the traceable water in the lungs of the victim. It had to be a part of the plan. It's, it's interesting. What's interesting to me in, and I think really one of the, the big surprises of the show has been um, that, uh, that Jack, while, you know, his role is essentially to be wrong about everything doesn't come off as, as a dupe, which I think is kind of a compliment to the viewers because like I said, I'm not, <laughs> I'm in Jack's boat. he's constantly, uh way ahead of me fuller and and Hannibal, so you know hopefully uh my inability to answer that question is as uh sympathetic to your listeners as uh, as as people are to jack for not knowing i I don't know um just to conclude uh you know i mean the fact that she's alive and presumably knows i mean obviously knows it's hannibal that did this to her would suggest that she can uh exonerate will and 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 point to Hannibal, but obviously I think you know it can't be that easy, so she's there's something going on, and I don't know what's going to happen. How about you?
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm also just a bunch of conjecture, really, but I thought it was interesting just to think about because obviously she's going to have some kind of story to tell the FBI and whether or not Hannibal has manipulated that history of, well, obviously he's kept her alive, so will he have some kind of story that he's <clears throat> created for her in some way that she can kind of lead the FBI in the wrong direction? All really interesting questions, I think, that will hopefully be answered. But, Kate, what what does this do for Jack, given just how he still feels so much guilt and how he's been in such a dark place this season because of Bella and Will?
1: Well, that's an interesting thing you bring up there. And that's while I didn't think of this at the time and while I was absolutely engrossed in this episode, when I was thinking about it after the fact, I did have a little bit of an issue with this. The, the, this development, as shocking as it was, and effective as effective as it was, uh, and that that issue is, how does Jack have the time to drive out to the middle of nowhere to to do this? It, didn't we just spend you know, the last couple of episodes, you know, detailing the drama of his dying wife? And how he needs to be by her side that felt a little uh, convenient that he was had was able to do these different things to, ha- to follow you know to go interview will again and to follow up with this and to drive out into the middle of nowhere by himself was, which makes no sense but um, <laughs> it's so, so that felt a little inconsistent but I think obviously the return of Miriam last will be huge for him that's his big uh, big failure before will so to have Miriam last returned and at the same fell swoop, uh, Will exonerated, that's got to be huge f- for Jack. However, there's no way Hannibal allows Miriam to be found if she's going to implicate him. And so while right. at first there's this, when I was watching it, there was this wonderful sense of triumph Especially after reading uh, Todd Van walkthrough with Brian Fuller over at the AV Club. After watching the episode, there, it just becomes very clear that this can't be the Miriam that Jack lost. Because the Miriam... it, it, it To me, it doesn't really make sense for Hannibal to have never allowed her to figure out who he is and to have convinced her that he wasn't involved. So she's, she's going to have to be on team Hannibal to some extent, or Hannibal would not have let her be found. And that's, that's going to be another big, uh, big loss for uh, Jack, whether or not he he can get his Miriam back will be interesting over the course of the season. Um, And the other thing with, with this development is I'm curious what you guys think about this. I was getting a little at the very end of the episode. I was like, Oh great. They've finally, they've, they've had a breakthrough and Hannibal made a mistake. And then I realized I was being an idiot. And of course, Hannibal didn't make a mistake. Um, and, and at that, at this point, while I agree that the show has done a fabulous job of making Jack believable and root for a and not seem like a dupe. And a lot of that also, I would say goes to Lawrence Fishburne. His performance is so, is so uh, strong and so competent. The, the demeanor that he gives Jack that that really helps. But, at this point, there's too many strings within strings, and I I, I need to see I need to see Hannibal a li- just slightly more on the ropes. I think soon because otherwise this is in danger of aha, but I knew all along. In one too many times,
0: I think Jack's getting there, but he's taking his time because that's I guess the kind of investigator he is. Uh, you talked for the I think last week about. Who's going to be the next one to kind of join Team Will? Because it seems to be very lopsided in favor of Team Hannibal right now. (laughs) Um, And and Jack is certainly taking steps towards that. Obviously, Alana is lost in that battle uh, this week. But Chilton, I think, is one who kind of steps in to kind of take on Will's opinion or at least believe him to some extent. So we could talk a little bit more about that uh, in just a bit. But one thing that you mentioned, Kate, was, um, I guess, the believability of the whole thing, just the the concept of Jack going out there when he has so much stuff on his mind and things to do. One thing also, I think that a lot of us will probably have some believability issues, maybe not believability, but just the logistics of tree man and how it was staged. (laughs) Um, Dennis, do you want to talk a little bit about that uh, presentation?
2: I would love to. Um, I was actually talking uh, today when I, I I, uh, saw uh, my good friend and fellow AV clubber Zach Handlin, he stops by when I'm at work to um, uh, rent movies and, and pester me. And, uh, we brought. We were talking about that, and I was like, "You know, that tree thing." And he said, "I know," because <laughs> um, you know Hannibal. It was in a parking lot. I mean, there would have had to be a, like a jackhammer involved, and possibly a like a front loader, uh, and one guy, and and a tree, and uh, you know, it's it's sort of like with the, the the totem pole or with um, you know some of the other very elaborately uh, sort of posed killings. I think. I think, and what I think Zach said is is correct it's it's such a good show, and it's so far and above what like a serial killer show or a a cop show is and it's it's in keeping with fuller's kind of uh very singular visual sense he's he's very interested in building mood as much as he is and creating effect and visual as he is in plot. And so I'm I'm perfectly willing to let that go. Um, Again, it it did jump out at me. I mean, (laughs) he had to, you know, presumably whether it's like a Walmart parking lot or whatever it is, it's a parking lot, you know, where people gather. And in one night he had to he had to, you know, tear up the, the tar and plant a tree with a dead guy in it. And yeah. So, I mean, there's there are certain things that I think I'm willing to cut the show a whole lot of slack for. And that would be one of them. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, I think I'm in agreement with that. And... and
2: if I could, just one one other thing. That As far as Miriam um, being on Team Hannibal, I mean, there's no question that she knows who Hannibal is because that's why Hannibal uh, took her out in the first place is that she figured out that he was the Chesapeake Ripper and she knows she was in his office and he strangled her. Uh, so, you know, there has to be... He has to have done something to her because she, she certainly knew at one point exactly who Hannibal is.
1: Yes, but we'll also... New things at one point sure. too, and Hannibal <laughs> created memory gaps. So, yep. we'll see. Um, and I, and to to dive back in with that, the I I guess I I see absolutely where you guys are coming from, and I am willing to give this show so much slack on its on its grotesque tableaus. And we were we were kind of joking about that last week with Beverly. The thing that I have with this is as these get increasingly elaborate and increasingly. Uh, specific as also just like you guys are saying with the parking lot, they would have had to tear up the the tar. <laughs> like I'm, I can, I will give the show that if he Hannibal is not somehow magically keeping all of his, these scenes devoid of trace evidence. So mm. if, if, if there's this, you know, this element of him, Progressing and getting more ambitious and getting sloppier, maybe, with his presentations of his corpse of his victims, that, that as part of his development as a serial killer, that's interesting. That's you know something that I look forward to the show exploring if he's doing more, in this manner, but still somehow magically keeping an absolutely clean trace element free crime scene. Then after a while, it it becomes too much uh, magic. And not enough uh, of a balanced, you know, very intelligent, very clever, very tricky person, but a person. And that's something the first season balanced really well. And now about halfway through the second season, I'm starting to get a little frustrated with that balance.
0: It's a good point, And those traces should be there. Actually, when we saw Hannibal in this episode with the, the injuries on his arms, I went to go back and watch the first scene from the season premiere just to see if they were there and they weren't. So I don't know what that means about the healing process or uh, or how much time we're going to like jump uh, ahead or how many days we're going to gloss over in between episodes. But yeah, you figure that there would be something there that that shows that he is getting a little too uh, in over his head or that he's making some mistakes here and there. What interested me uh, about the, the Tree Man corpse, I guess, was the more overtly political motive of targeting somebody, you know, quote unquote bad, you know, Jimmy and Brian talk about how he was a politician who paved over this place that endangered some of songbirds in the area. And so I'm wondering if now with Miriam being found, if Hannibal's going to start targeting people in that more specific manner, if like if he's going to try and give the Chesapeake Ripper a political edge to it and to kind of divert attention away from him, if that's even possible.
2: I think, um, for me, it, uh, I can't imagine that that would be – it just seems like Hannibal is so far beyond caring about things like that. But I think for this guy, it was like when he killed the – I think he was, I don't know, some sort of businessman. He pulled his car over on the side of the road. It was a matter of aesthetics more than anything else. Uh, that guy was rude, and he Hannibal just didn't like him. He thought the world would be better without him, and I think maybe just the fact that this – guy annoyed Hannibal by destroying something he found aesthetically pleasing that that or meadow or whatever it was maybe that was enough to put his card in in the Rolodex I don't know
0: absolutely it might have been and then one of the other things I think that really worked were the different poisonous flowers that were used and how the belladonna specifically was mentioned and obviously that name calls to mind Jack's wife and so there are kind of layers there which really worked. I mentioned earlier, though, Dr. Chilton kind of joining Team Will, and I want to move on to, I think, two characters who have really contributed to the past couple episodes. And given that Beverly is dead, I think that Hannibal relies more and more on its supporting cast and not just the the two central performances. And the first one that I want to talk about is Chilton and just how excellent Raul Esparza has been. (laughs) Kate, do you want to talk about how he admits to being... Um, this autocrat but that he still is somewhat sympathetic and you know what does this character add to the story right now?
1: Well I think the single biggest thing that Chilton adds to this story and has added for the entire series just they've given him more scenes this season so he's been able to bring this element even more to season two is humor and that's a big thing that I, I know people complain about in season one it, this is such a, a dark show it's such a uh, uh, disturbing show that a little bit of humor makes a big difference in in how much of of the the violence and the horror we can really take as viewers. And so this I mean, he's hilarious this <laughs> week. And that that you know that even even just that conversation where he's talking about I'm just really glad I can't eat meat. <laughs> it was hilarious and very just so perfectly played by by Ralph Sparza. Just it's been great to watch him get more to do this season and to keep Chilton a smarmy, unlikable <laughs> jackass, basically, <laughs> while also making him seem far more competent and interesting and uh, nuanced of a character this season. For In the first season, he's played almost entirely for humor and he's written off in a big way the fact that he basically 100% believes Will at this point. He's like, yep, I'm I'm pretty sure that Hannibal did it, while still feeling like the same person who was a joke all in season one. I think it is, is a really nice development, and and the fact that he's as wily as we see him be this week with his, I mean, his horrible poker face, but the fact that he specifically goes to the dinner party because he doesn't want Hannibal to be pissed at him, you know, I think that, that really helps... Yeah, per- project a longevity for that character that I might not have anticipated in season one.
0: Just his reaction to that claw-like dish, the face <laughs> that, that Raoul Sparcik is, is so priceless and fantastic. Um, but you, you make the good point that he's not just somebody there for the comic relief anymore. There's There's more to it. There's a little bit more nuance. And certainly compared to the film portrayals of him, there's much more to this Doctor Shilton, I think, than the one that we get in in Red Dragon or or in Silence of the Lambs. Um, De- Dennis, what has your relationship with this character been? <laughs> uh, uh,
2: fantastic. I lo- I love the way the actor has and and Fuller and the writers have uh, turned, and I think it's of a piece with the writing on the show. As much as I liked, I liked Thomas Harris's uh, first two books anyway, and <laughs> Silence of the Lambs. Um, I really love how they're not beholden to those the characterizations in either, and they're free to develop them in different directions. I find myself uh cheering for Chilton um you know when he confronted hannibal on the on the stairs and accused him of you know using directed therapy and and really stood up to him and did not back down while at, as Kate says at the same time, just being you know. Uh, smarmy uh, you know prick the whole time you know he he doesn't they don't abandon the character but they take him in directions you don't that you didn't think of and uh, you know as fun as Anthony held was in Silence of the Lambs I think this is a much more um, entertaining and much more interesting uh, layered
0: kind of character I love it I would agree and um, in this episode Hannibal is sitting down at the end talking with Abel Gideon, and he says, the tragedy is not to die able but to be wasted. And I would certainly say that Eddie Izzard has not been wasted at all in this series, and especially in this episode. Kate, could you talk about what he's been able to accomplish in the short amount of time he's been given?
1: Well, I mean, he makes that scene work. And, it you know, j- j- the Abel Gideon's point of view in that scene, or his ability to eat himself <laughs> work. <laughs> oh, God, how horrifying is that? And yet, Izzard sells it and uh, without making it seem too easy. And, and I mean, I think the rapport between Eddie Izzard and, uh, and Matt Smichelson is, is really great in that scene. I really love the humor that Izzard, of course, he's a stand up comedian. I love his stand up, but the humor he brings to to his scene with Will, to Abel Gideon's scene with Will, where he starts, you know, monologuing for Chilton's benefit, also is really great. But, um, and I, I mean, I just think I think it's been a really strong and fun addition to the series. I would say for me, yes, he's he gets a lot to do this week, but I think he was even more fun last week, toying with Alana, toying with uh, with Jack and, and some of these others. But um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's really great here and he makes that horrifying final scene with him this week work.
0: Yeah, the presentation of that was easily the best meal presentation I think <laughs> Hannibal has done, just because of the theatricality of that. I didn't even know that people cook things in clay, so that was a real, I guess, joy to witness, despite how horrifying it was. Uh, but you mentioned the scene in which he is talking with Will, in which um, Abel is talking with Will, and how that is shot. So these two people in their cells, um, their individual, I guess, Portraits are kind of sandwiched together, and they they come closer as the camera moves forward. And I don't know if you caught it, but in there, yeah, there's the mouse, the rat, (laughs) just climbing down. And Dennis, if this serves as uh, some kind of metaphor, I guess, often, which is often what happens in Hannibal, (laughs) about the idea of ratting. What what is it that prevents Abel from telling on Hannibal? You know, and, and does he deserve what Hannibal does to him at the end of the episode? (laughs)
2: Uh, Good question. First of all, I I hope that the rat is not a metaphor because it just makes me think of the end of The Departed, which is the most egregiously awful piece of ham-handed symbolism I've ever seen in my life. So hopefully not. But um, yeah, the the idea of uh, Abel and and Hannibal, what I've loved about Eddie Izzard especially is from the beginning, there's been a weird sort of vulnerability to him, like everything – whenever he even when he's saying and doing the most horrible things he he seems his eyes are almost haunted and apologetic about it because he knows he's not Hannibal he knows he's not he knows he's second best at best and so you know that makes sense to me the way that his and Hannibal's story plays out is that you know (laughs) he's forced to consume himself Hannibal is sort of showing him what the Chesapeake Ripper really is, and sort of that he was never good enough. I don't know. That's just it. It. I just love Izard's performance all through. It's it's hilarious and it's it's sort of tickly in the way that he can deliver a line. But at the same time, it always struck me. He always struck me as someone very sad about the fact that
0: he wasn't who he hoped he would be. I'm really glad to use the word "sad" in that case because one of the lines that he delivers in that final conversation. Uh, He's just kind of conjecturing. He says, hard to have anything, isn't it, Dr. Lecter? Rare to get it, hard to keep it, a damn slippery life. And this, to me, feels like Hannibal, the series, doing that kind of sad conjecturing when you kind of reach this point, uh, this moment of epiphany, where things kind of come together in a way... um, It's like a process of negation. Like, things make more sense by kind of just ignoring them completely and just writing things off as impermanent this idea of impermanence um i guess i was just wondering about that if either of you had any thoughts on ideas of impermanence in hannibal because i don't know if hannibal honestly thinks that he can keep this up forever
1: well before we go to that just a quick thought on on edi again because i think it's interesting you guys both see that sadness because i don't instead i see the charisma of that Eddie Izzard just has. And I think that's a big part of making that character work. And that's a, I think that's a big part where uh, they have to, a big reason that they have to underline, don't forget, this guy horrifically murdered a nurse <laughs> in season one. He deserves what he's going to get at the end of the episode. I mean, I thought that was a little heavy-handed, the the way that they remind the audience about that. But um, but I, it was, I think it's necessary because he is just so likable. Just such an, a charismatic presence on film Um, but when we talk about uh, impermanence on the show I think it goes back to what we've seen in the past couple episodes when we've had this conversation from Hannibal uh, with these other characters about how he's always aware that you know he embraces the notion of death because that gives life meaning the fact that life could go away it gives you know the impermanence of life is what gives it it it's interest and its power and its significance and so i mean i think that's something we see right here
0: definitely um we should probably move on to what will most likely be the most controversial aspect of the episode for viewers which is the the hannibal alana i don't know what you want to call it relationship or otherwise the line used in the episode is who does he have to kill before opening your eyes is what <laughs> will says to, to jack and then we cut immediately to alana's face which is fantastic but, um, but Dennis, what, what's Hannibal's goal with Alana here? Because he could easily kill her, but is it better for him to keep her alive as a sexual partner to make Will more jealous?
2: Yeah, <laughs> this is me trying to get inside Hannibal's mind. I, It's really interesting. I, I guess I'm to say at the outset, I think that Alana has been the character who's been least well served by the show so far as far as the major characters go. I love Caroline DeVernis, uh, from Brian Fuller's, Fuller's uh, Wonderfalls. I loved her then. I love her now. But um, I don't know. Her Her role on the show has been, I don't know, more stereotypically, she's been the woman. Uh, you know, she kisses Will. Now she sleeps with Hannibal. I don't know what exactly she's going for, except Zach, Zach Hanlon mentioned something about the idea that maybe it's in reaction to the fact that, you know, she's turned on Will. She finally believes that Will is guilty and sort of she's sharing that with Hannibal. As far as where, what Hannibal is getting out of this.
0: <laughs> it's it's difficult. I mean, Kate, do you think that Hannibal is even sexual? Is he capable of like having those kinds of feelings and emotions?
1: I have no idea, but I don't think it comes into play here. I think this is to me, this seems pretty straightforward, which is if she's she's a very emotional Person, She's very respectful, but she's also very emotional, and that's why she resisted so long getting involved with Will, because she knew that if she started something with him, that it could very easily become uh, very consuming and uh, destructive for her. And so by instigating a relationship with Alana or, you know, nudging her and manipulating her, it goes back to his master puppeteer Uh, element that we see fond full display this week by instituting instigating a relationship with her he's keeping her clouded and he's keeping her firmly on team hannibal i like that the episode reminds us that she's known hannibal far longer than she's known any of these other characters so that makes sense and I, i like you know these other elements we get there but it just seems really straightforward he keeps uh toying with the different characters to keep them off their game or to keep them distracted. So first with Jack and Bella at this week with, with Miriam and then here with Alana as well. And I think it's also important for balance for the show to keep our characters split. If everybody is all of a sudden on team will the show becomes far less interesting. And so this is a way that makes sense, especially when she's reacting to this, to her, her, what I I took to be very powerful feelings for will being uh tied in with this person who's so dangerous to her to for her to instead seek out comfort and something that seems like it's safe and positive if will is this bad guy who she thought she knew but she didn't running to the opposite end of the spectrum this person that will says is so horrible that she feels like she knows but then you know if Will's terrible and he says handle is bad maybe enemy of my enemy all of that good stuff um (laughs) that, that makes sense to me and uh I mean, obviously, it's disturbing for me to watch, you know, Jay or Alana or just the wonderful Carolyn DeVernas uh, making out with with just <laughs> evil incarnate. But, you know, uh, I think it, it's, it sort of makes sense. And I like that they don't. I mean, it's always it's always such a been such a sexless show. And I've actually appreciated that element to the show. I, I appreciated the restraint with the Will and Alana for a relationship in season one. But I think to to show this element of at least a couple of the characters' lives makes sense. And uh, I absolutely believe it as a manipulation from Hannibal. Plus, it's a very convenient alibi.
0: Sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, it, it totally makes sense. I think I was initially very resistant to the idea, especially the way that it was um, portrayed, like, in the next week on Hannibal and then last week's episode. Uh, but it, it didn't come off as like a poor story decision or anything it's not like a love triangle and this is kind of a typical tv trope just because hannibal doesn't seem like he's in it in that way at all or whatsoever so then yeah the more i thought about it i think the more that i definitely warmed up to it and the problem i guess i had with it was just there's not really that many things to root for in hannibal because of how terrible the guy is and how far will's been drugged down that you know one of the few nice and easy things to root for has just been totally taken away and and hannibal has done an even worse thing to will i think so that's unfortunate but kate you mentioned evil incarnate and i wanted to talk about this image of will sprouting the antlers in his cage or in his are we calling it the tardis based on last week (laughs) yeah
1: it felt um, very shark cage to me this week. Actually, it I, did. It I I love that did. imagery in the opening scene, and then later with Hannibal as well. But this the circling camera. I really enjoyed the direction this week. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, 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 no. the You're, question. <laughs>
0: absolutely right. Um, Dennis, is this a sensory reaction to Hannibal entering the room, or is Will being taken by the darkness essentially? Is is he becoming more like Hannibal? How are we supposed to interpret this?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean the whole. I mean Will's entire. You know, if Hannibal has the mind mansion, Will's mind mansion is is nature. It's, it's outdoors. It's the natural world. And, you know, last week he essentially, you know, tried to murder Hannibal by proxy. He hired a hitman without money but with his charisma, with the guy's hero worship, and crossed over into, you know, a deliberately planned murder so for me it just seemed like will was going to his sort of outdoors mind mansion and he became what he had always feared and that's where the horns came from
1: well and i like the imagery of it because for me it's not just specifically horns or antlers it all it, it looked more like uh that element is clearly there but it also looks somewhat like briars or, mm-hmm. or or in that for me gave me like a sleeping beauty thing uh but also it looks but not unlike the tree that we see mm-hmm. the victim in this week and so that the very specific design to not go the straightforward uh antlers or, or stag or any of that imagery but instead to make it more uncontrolled more uh more chaotic, and then also I think was when we, in that with that imagery we have it this week pushing outside of the cage. So it, this is giving him reach outside of and power outside of what he theoretically should have in this in this tiny cage in this prison or in this uh, this hospital, and more than he's had in the previous couple of weeks either. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? We'll see what happens <laughs> next week. But I you know I really like the attention to detail in that in that design.
0: It's a good point and then also what you what you said Dennis about kind of the different mind palaces having kind of different themes as well and how Will's is is very much based in nature.
1: And we haven't seen it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, not in a while. But like the the antlers imagery I think kind of works both ways because certainly the the dark version of Hannibal that we see the satyr has the horns. So, you know, it's it's something that I think that is really open to interpretation which I I enjoy. And there always seems to be at least one thing um, every week in Hannibal, despite my best efforts to pay attention and, and do smart stuff, even though that doesn't go well all the time. But uh, there's a line in this episode, and I could use some help breaking it down. Will is saying to Jack when Jack comes to visit him after um, is right at the beginning of the episode. He says, there's a common emotion we all recognize and not yet named, the happy anticipation of being able to feel contempt. <laughs> The Happy Anticipation of Being Able to Feel Contempt. Kate, can you break that down at all?
1: I mean, that makes sense to me because he can't feel contempt for Hannibal while Hannibal is a threat. And so he looks forward to a time when he is able to look at Hannibal in a cell and feel contempt towards him because he is no longer theoretically as much of a threat. Right now, he can't feel contempt because he has fear, he has panic, he is. Uh, He's concerned of what's going to happen next, who Hannibal's next going to kill. And he also has he also has uh, paranoia and he also has this this very real sense that no one believes him. So there's all this other emotion going on with Will, but he can't at least this is how I read it. He cannot yet feel contempt for Hannibal because he is not in a position to be able to have that distance.
0: That makes sense to me. So perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sorry.
2: It's like uh yeah, it, it's it's like Schadenfreude, except uh, you know, very specific and very different. It's it's almost like a verb tense thing. It's like you can't say I told you so, but it's it's sort of like saying, I will have told you so at some point in the future.
1: When I am able to have told you so, <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, All right. Um, Well, for new listeners to the podcast, we are now instating two recurring segments, the first of which is Kate's Classical Corner. So, Kate, what can you tell us about the music in Futamono?
1: Oh, there's so much.
0: I, I expected this one to be quite a long segment. So yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I'm not going to even go into the classical music featured in this episode because there's a lot of it. There's Mozart. There's uh, there's Strauss. There's there's a bunch of it. Uh, instead, I the episode begins and there's a harpsichord and I'm like, are they listening to us from the past when they were actually making this? It's great. I love that. I, the fact that Hannibal composes either for the harpsichord or the theremin is delightful to me because the harpsichord is an instrument originating in the middle ages and the theremin uh, came about in the twenties and thirties. And and of course, harpsichord started in in Europe and the theremin was developed in Russia. So just it's the two opposite ends of the spectrum. But I thought I would dive in with that uh, element there. So what some things that I think are interesting about the harpsichord we've discussed in the podcast on the podcast in the past, uh, about how for a show that is so ornate and so uh, embraces the Baroque elements, the purple elements of, of, of production and really heightening everything, they don't really use Baroque music. And the harpsichord is a Baroque instrument. It 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 is a precursor to the piano, but rather than having the strings be hammered as they are with the piano, they are plucked, which means that you cannot... Uh, you can't really control your dynamics in a significant way, so it's a very restrained instrument. It's a it's a parlor instrument as opposed to a large work instrument. You're not going to have like an orchestra with you, um, and it there's a lot of very interesting counterpoint. Mi mean, Bach, uh, Jan Sebastian Bach is one of the all time great masters of music, but specifically counterpoint, and he wrote a lot of harpsichord music. And there's a lot of very chromatic and modern sounding. Music That is actually from the broke time period, uh, musicological time period. Uh, And so to have that element brought in here was really interesting. The opening piece and the closing piece fit very nicely in the, the rules, as it were, of counterpoint, but the middle piece does not. And it was—I'm uh, sure there's like three other people who watched this and just started twitching when Hannibal was writing his piece in the middle because it's wrong, uh, and here's why. There, there's these—it's uh, it, in D harmonic minor, D minor, of course, the saddest of all keys. Thank you, Nigel Tufnel. Um, <laughs> oh, is it Nigel? Christopher Guest uh, character.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Nigel.
1: Yes, Nigel Um uh, But there, there are augmented seconds all over the place, which are very off-putting and and not an a interval that's used frequently in counterpoint and also he's doing diminished triads and everything it's just completely wrong so the fact that you have Hannibal starting out at the beginning of the episode when he's in reco- he's recovering from the traumatic events of last week with a with a minor piece but much more in keeping with uh the the traditions and I, I actually I think it is an existing piece as opposed to a new creation. And then ending the episode in his moment of triumph in this incredibly, much more ornate, but much more uh, time, time period appropriate sort of uh, counterpoint. And then in the center, to ha- when, when he's uh, in the middle of his plan, we think he's on the ropes. Turns out he's not at all. To have this just wrong counterpoint, I think, is such a great move by by the composer brian retzel uh it it's it doesn't it's disconcerting he's obviously he knows what he's doing as a uh musician he's he's actually writing all the music out and everything and there it it almost fits with some of the counterpoint rules but to have just that unsettling tonality within that's not technically incorrect in theory but actually it, it doesn't really work it's just a a great bit of uh, fun for us music nerds or musicians out there. (laughs) Sorry, I'm going like way too deep dive on this, but I I loved it. Uh, Also, the, the, to, to, the fact that, you know, the the harpsichord is an instrument that needs to be played with extreme precision. If you're going to get the most, the most out of it, because it is so refined because you can't do dynamics, you have to play with your, your timing. You have to play with the length and the sustain of everything that you're doing. And I I love that, that when compared to the theremin, which Alana says is the other instrument that he composes for. Cause that's another instrument that requires absolute precision to be able to create a sound. Um, so th- that's another element there. And then the other thing I'll mention is I love that the harpsichord music that we get at the start of the party dinner party is minimalist, which means it's, it's, there's, it's rep- repetitious, but with slight changes over time, we only get a few, Moments of it, seconds of it, so we don't get a chance to really hear it expand. But it's such a fun choice, and that's minimalism is a modern comparative, uh, time, uh musical time period. So, or, or or movement. So to have all this contrast over the course of the episode, from correct sounding, period appropriate, baroque harpsichord at the beginning and at the end, with this just and again, I I cannot stress enough as a as a musician how wrong and different the uh the composition in the center is but then to be to contrast that with the um the minimalism on a harpsichord later on it was just delightful so i absolutely loved just kind of geeking out over the music on this and i may have stayed up for a solid hour after it was done transcribing hannibal's thing in the (laughs) middle there and just like trying to figure out exactly what was bothering me about it but just the detail that goes into the The music on the show is is delightful. We have romantic and and classical music featured uh, throughout the rest of the episode, but these touches of harpsichord, ooh, it's good stuff.
0: I am literally amazed right now. Me too, <laughs> Dennis. Just just on the off chance, do you do you have any uh, interest or background in music at all? Oh dear God, no. Okay, um,
2: <laughs> I just want to say thank you to Kate, man. I mean, the, there are so many when uh, I mean, people talk about how you know uh critics should pay more attention to the visuals and the end of a of a something they're reviewing but you know you've introduced an entire other element of the show and the the levels of care and planning and and uh beauty that go into creating something so horrible it's just a a whole other whole other avenue to to explore it's just really fascinating so thank you
1: well and the Thank you to the composer, Brian Retzel, <laughs> and uh, also, apparently, uh, for this theme, there's a lovely Tumblr, uh, Hannibalsmusic.tumblr.com, that, that lists all the classical music in each episode, and so if you're interested in this, check it out, but it, apparently, this is called Rondo in D Minor by Brian Retzel and Dave Palmer, so if you're curious, you know, check out that Tumblr and get a little bit more information about all the different music featured in the episode, but not only a shout-out to Brian Retzel, but also, apparently, to Dave Palmer.
0: And that'll carry us to our second segment the devil in the details so little details visual otherwise not necessarily uh music obviously but anything else that we want to bring up and um I just wanted to start by talking about the the Japanese theme that is serving as the theme for the whole season but I found very uh noteworthy in this episode in this episode specifically the, the title of the episode, Futamono, which is part of the Kaiseki uh, dinner, of course, uh, literally means, I don't know if it literally means, but uh, the Wikipedia tells me that it is a lidded dish, as in a, a lid covers it, and it's typically soup. And I, the image that we end on, of course, is kind of Jack opening the lid, first on the container that has water at the bottom, and then um, the second one contains Miriam, so I thought that was an interesting parallel. Obviously, we get a The camera lingers just a little bit on the samurai armor that's in Hannibal's house. Um, Chopsticks isn't obviously a Japanese um, composition, but chopsticks are also a Japanese-eating utensil. So I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I found that entertaining. And then when Brian and Jimmy are going through the, the evidence and they talk about the beef that's used in the food that Hannibal serves, it's wagyu beef and wagyu is literally Japanese cow. So the attention to detail there was it just blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> Dennis were there any details that stood out to you in Futamono? Oh holy cow.
2: All right. Um one quick one and one uh, one not. Uh my wife pointed out um when Hannibal and Alana are in bed especially when they're speaking I think in the morning after it's shot as if uh it's sh- not shot overhead It's shot as if uh they're standing vertically there it just sort of underscores you know it's a very restful image it's a very peaceful kind of lovey-dovey sort of image of them you know and and moss mickelson can be very you know sort of charming and he's obviously very handsome and uh you know and and just that sort of post-coital image but the fact that it was shot as if they were you know standing against a wall with a mattress on it uh sort of underscored how everything wasn't as it seemed also uh The fact that the the way the show drops in lines and details from the original works, Uh, this time it was very famous, uh, you know, when he hears someone at the door, you know, last time it was uh, someone knocked this early, it was a a census taker. You know, we all know what we were thinking, but I really I uh, (laughs) one I, I, I appreciate how Fuller has sort of taken that source material and made it his own. As I say, I think this is a far superior work to to the to the books or even even I'm coming to think it's better uh, than than the best of the movies of this. And it's the way that it's transformation. You know, it's like this is his design. He's he's throwing these little and when it's something so egregious like that, it's like he's throwing out these little uh, sops to the fans. But it's it's almost to the point where where the show doesn't need
0: them. I don't know. That's what I got. Excellent. Kate, What details stood out to you.
1: Well, I took notes this time, so I have too many of them. <laughs> all uh, right. First of all, I'm glad you mentioned the Fudemono, uh translation or, or course because I can't believe that last week, this is for last week, the the course or the title is Mukozuke, which is a sashimi course. And with <laughs> the presentation of Beverly, the fact that we didn't mention that last week, I was, I was just absolutely regretting that as soon as we finished recording. Um, but for this week, several things. First of all, Uh, Did anybody else notice that when they are at the parking lot, we see one of the the CSI kind of people walking around. We see only from the back. And it's a woman with long, loosely curled black hair, roughly the same height as Beverly and wearing something that she might wear. And so I having that background person there, it it just sort of I was like, Beverly. Oh, no. So (laughs) such a great I'm I maybe it's un, unintentional, and but I like to think it's not. So that was nice. Uh, the the claw, the chicken kind—I of, think that's a chicken foot or something like that—dish at the the dinner party is uh, like a direct match of the Living Dead Guy Productions logo, which <laughs> I think is was delightful. Uh, so that was really nice. I like that the Belladonna scene reminds the audience that Jack actually knows a lot about profiling, and that this is you know compared to. Will, and compared to Hannibal, not so much, but compared to most people, he actually knows a lot about this stuff. So it's, it's nice to have that little bit of a reminder. And uh, the, the rat in the wall, I forgot to mention this earlier, for me, I don't know if this is an intentional homage, but it, it was very reminiscent to me of the X-Files episode, The War of the Copperphages, which is that horrible, horrible cockroach episode that has a cockroach skitter across the frame um you, well, while in the middle of a scene so that that sort of reminded me of that so and so those are the ones that uh that kind of came to mind this time but so many fun details
0: yeah i had two more one of them is significantly more interesting than the other um <laughs> the the less interesting one is just watching hannibal on the tv you're so immersed in this thing and you're like wow whether or not i think this is a very great tv series it's at least like beautifully crafted and everything and then occasionally you'll you'll see advertisements for Believe in Crisis pop up, and you're just like NBC, no, don't don't ruin this. Uh, but the the one that I thought was really impressive was, I think it's when Hannibal is leaving the room and leaving Alana there sleeping, the the moon hovers by the window and it goes into one of those signature establishing shots where we see time pass very quickly and kind of the, the clouds and the buildings move and everything. But I paid attention to it and the the moon is moving so fast through the window that I thought, okay, well that's just kind of the two scenes merging and um, it'll kind of just transition and the moon will be in the same specific place on the screen when it switches, but it doesn't. Like it's in like a higher place on the screen afterwards so it was like a dose of magic realism that that the moon was moving that quickly in real time, um, which I thought was really interesting. But those were the rest of my details. Did, did either of you want to bring up anything else, any other questions that you had or anything you wanted to talk about in relation to Futamono?
1: There's the visual reference, because we already mentioned Silence of the Lambs and some of the other references. But, of course, Miriam Lass in the well, is very, at least to me, having only seen Silence of the Lambs, is very reminiscent of... It puts the lotion on the skin. So I thought that was a fun little nod there.
0: Yeah. No, D- D- Dennis, did you have something to add?
2: Um, just following up on your idea of uh, the viewing experience and, and sort of uh, uh, the commercials interrupting my my the show's flow and my enjoyment. Um, whenever it's a restaurant commercial or some sort of food stuff – I don't think like, oh, they shouldn't um, they shouldn't be associated with the show about a guy uh, eating people. I I think more like, oh, they should really up their game because their presentation looks terrible next to (laughs) Hannibal's.
0: Oh, it's perfect. Uh, It's probably the the best place to end. So once again, thank you, Dennis, for for coming on to the podcast this week. Where can our listeners find you online?
2: Oh, goodness. Uh, well, uh, the AV Club, avclub.com. I review a bunch of shows and uh, pop up from uh, different places. And I'm on Twitter, Dennis Perkins uh, 5. And uh, definitely, if you're on the AV Club, check out uh, Molly Eichel's
0: weekly um,
2: reviews of the show because she's she's one
0: of the best. Perfect. And, and Kate, where can our listeners find you?
1: You can find me at soundonsite.org, where I review a number of different shows right now. Uh, well, Red Road just wrapped up, but Parenthood and Grimm, and I'll be starting An Orphan Black soon. So excited! We'll also be kicking off our Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast this week. So if you want to listen to me talk about that show, you can check that out at Sound On Sight, as well as my weekly TV podcast, The Televerse, where we cover everything else. And uh, hit me up on Twitter at The Televerse. I love to talk about all this stuff clearly, because I, if you if you if you're like that, wasn't enough of a deep dive into harpsichords. Drop
0: me a line. Uh, I might be dropping you a line, so get ready for that. <laughs> uh, you can find my Hannibal Reviews at TVOverMind.com, but I'm a contributor both there and, of course, Sound On site. And my my blog is ThereIsNothingOn.com. I'm also on Twitter at my name, at Sean Colletti. So once again, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. Rocky Raccoon jacked into his room to find Gideon's Bible Rocky had come Equipped with a gun To shoot off The lands of his rival
1: His rival it seems Had broken his dreams
0: By stealing the girl Of his fancy Her name was McGill
1: And
2: she called herself Lil But everyone